Expanding scientific discoveries while elevating diversity, Dr. Danae Carlos has been a champion for both during his 20-year career at NOAA. Carlos's hard work and years of experience have prepared him for his new role as director of NOAA's National Severe Storms Laboratory. He is the first African-American to be named a lab director in NOAA's offices of oceanic and atmospheric research. As he bridges the gap between science and society, Carlos continues to work for equity and inclusion for all. Dr. Carlos, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you, Marshall, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to share. Yeah, and I've just got to come right out of the gate with a full disclosure for all the Weather Geeks listeners because Dr. Carlos and I, I'm going to I'm going to banish that Dr. Carlos from this point on and just call him Danae because that's just what I know him as. But, you know, I do want to respect the fact that he is Dr. Danae Carlos and we'll get into his background, his history. But we, we've known each other for a long time. Uh, he's a scholar and and friend that I, I, I have looked up to and admired uh, for what he's doing in the enterprise. So I'm really excited about his um, career trajectory in the discussion today, but I, I got to start with the first question I ask every Weather Geeks guest. How'd you become a Weather Geek? Oh, man, that is a, a great question. And I, I think it kind of starts with me becoming a STEM science kind of advocate early on in my kind of life and career. You know, I remember, uh, you know, growing up in Oklahoma, having a, a medical doctor, uh, one of the a few medical doctors, African-American medical doctors uh, that was, you know, I was friends with his son and he really inspired me to, to go into STEM, go into science. And, and so he would tell us stories about, you know, doing chemistry experiments and all kinds of stuff. And uh, him being a medical doctor, I thought I was going to kind of follow that path. And uh, once I started taking biology, I was like, no, that's a little bit too much <laughs> memorization for me. And I was, I was, I was better at solving problems, uh, in college. And, uh, I, I actually kind of fell into, uh, atmospheric science meteorology because NOAA had, uh, established a new program at Howard university, uh, where I attended, uh, college. And, um, you know, once I took my first atmospheric science class, uh, in my master's program, I fell in love with it because it was just so applicable to how people live their daily lives. And so immediately, probably after that first course, I became I became a weather geek right at that particular time. So I was probably 21 when I became a weather geek, but I've been a science geek for a very long time. And it's interesting because, yeah, the science geek usually is there for many of us at an early age. But your story is a little bit different from many of our guests in that your weather geekdom came a bit later in your career. Um, yeah. we, we welcome you the fold with open arms. Uh, let me give you a little bit of uh, Dr. Carlos. I'm going to I'm going to try to say both. I'll catch myself saying today at times. Uh, Dr. Carlos is the first Amer African-American to be named the lab director in NOAA's Office of Oceanic and Atmospheric Research. And we'll, we'll be all over that topic later in the podcast. Uh, he has 20 years of service at NOAA. He currently serves for a few more days, at least at the time of this taping. By the time you hear it, he likely will be in his new role. But he currently serves as deputy director at NOAA's Global Systems Laboratory in Boulder. Uh, he joins NSSL on January 29th. Uh, his degrees, he at Howard University has a Bachelor of Sciences degree in uh, chemistry and master's and PhD in atmospheric sciences. In 2007, Carlos was the second African-American male to receive his PhD in atmospheric sciences. 
from Howard University's Outstanding Atmospheric Sciences Program, which I also know a little bit about. Shout out, by the way, to all of the alum, students, and faculty uh, there at Howard in the, in the Atmospheric Sciences Program. But, I, you know, this is going to be a wide-ranging discussion. I mean, there are so many things that we could talk about. Yeah. But, and I, I want to get to all of them, but I want to sort of stay on the sort of technical atmospheric sciences side for, for a moment. First of all, tell the listeners about what you have currently do and what the Global Systems Laboratory at NOAA is all about, and then pivot to let folks know what NSSL and why NSSL is and why it's so important to the nation. Yeah, so so at, at the Global Systems Laboratory, we are very much so a laboratory that focuses in on development of numerical weather prediction models and decision support tools uh, that will be used by the National Weather Service as well as other uh, entities out there, uh, such as private sector, um, and of course the academic sector use some of the tools that we develop. We developed the high resolution rapid refresh uh, forecast system uh, here uh, within um, uh, GSL, uh, as we like to call it, and and it is the premier, you know, convective allowing model in the world, uh, and that is developed at the Global Systems Laboratory. So we have some fantastic scientists that uh, really do kind of rapidly updating uh, data assimilation techniques so that we can be able to forecast at the convective allowing model scale, which is uh, three kilometers uh, right now. And so we're, we're the developers of that. We also, uh, can I, if you go back in history, we are the developers of the tools that are used in National Weather Service called AWIPS, the Advanced Weather Interactive Processing System. Uh, we're the original developers of that particular technology that is used by all 122 weather forecast offices across the country. And so when you think about uh, just the impact um, and the work that we've done at the Global Systems Laboratory and, and kind of where we're going, uh, it really is about user-inspired research. And so when you think about that, it, it's about getting people together, collecting information, getting users together to uh, define what their um, what their what their needs are, and and being able to uh, uh, match the research with the user needs, and and we're really focused on that with respect to kind of the wildfires that are continually happening all over the country. You know, especially out in the West here in Colorado, we had the Marshall Fire a year ago. We just celebrated, not necessarily celebrated. We just we we had the one year anniversary of the. The, of the Marshall Fire, where we had at least three of our employees that lost their homes, uh, and we are, you know, leading um, in that particular area to do kind of fire weather research by establishing and bringing together the fire weather community to look at the to to talk about kind of fire weather um, tools and technologies that we uh, can deploy to uh, frontline workers uh, that would use that information, use NOAA's data and GSL's data. Uh, to to better predict where these these fires are going, and so that's kind of the the GSL mission, you know. And so we're we're, we're establishing this fire weather test bed uh, to bring that community together. And now, you know, when I pivot to kind of the National Severe Storms Laboratory, uh, it's it, we are basically the Severe Storms organization. That is what we specialize in, you know, whether that be um, 
some of the, the tools and technologies we, we are uh, deploying with regards to going out on field campaigns to study severe storms and tornadoes, uh, lightning as well. Uh, we also have a component of, uh, of hyd hydrological services that we provide within the National Severe Storms Laboratory. Um, and as well as, you know, we are the developers of the weather radars. Uh, there are weather radars all over the country. And I know you just got you a new weather radar. So we're we going to have to, yeah, we're going to have to collaborate on that. <laughs> Happy to do so for sure. Well, I'm, I'm, although we certainly will go through the, the normal competitive channels that, that, that you all require in those processes. No doubt. Know. But, but so yeah, yeah, so yeah, NSSL. yeah, 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 NSSL is a very important laboratory in the federal weather ecosystem. Uh, and I people don't realize they're using your products every day when they pull up a radar app or you know they look at the at certain news channels and so forth because those WSR uh, 88Ds and then the sort of upgrade to the polarimetric radar suite all come from, from your work. Some of the original quote unquote storm chasers were NSL folks as they were going out early on before it became in vogue and sort of everyone was doing it. Uh, trying to understand better these systems, these convective systems and so forth. And as you mentioned, even some of the hydrological folks, I mean, I'm thinking of the work of J.J. Gurley and some others that I've worked with over the years, even at Goddard. So just a really amazing opportunity uh, with a very capable person now at the lead of the National Severe Storms Laboratory. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was sitting here listening to you talk about GSL and NSSL, I bet many of the listeners don't even sort of know that there are this series of laboratories that are part of NOAA. I think many people that might listen to this podcast are certainly familiar with NOAA and the National Weather Service, maybe even NESDIS, the satellite organization. But there are these series of labs. And I, I mean, we don't have to go through all of them, but there are these series of labs. Talk about the function of these labs in the broader NOAA big picture. Yeah, you look at you look at the weather service and the National Weather Service (NWS) and you you, you think of them as kind of the operational arm of NOAA, um, delivering products and services. They do some research uh, as well, but there's there's like you said, there's a there has to be a bigger um, you know community that's working with operations that's on the research side, whether that be within NOAA in our laboratories and we have 10 laboratories across the country in some of the best locations uh, that you can find out there. You know, the government has great land, by the way. Um, and so, you know, there has to be this, this, this backbone, whether that be in academia or within the agency, within NOAA, uh, that's conducting research that is, you know, going to be transitioned to operations so that uh, the National Weather Service can actually produce the products and services that are available, whether that be on Twitter, whether that be to given to uh, TV stations or uh, newspapers out there, or the two uh, products given to the academic community and private sector who use NOAA's data uh, and repackage it and up, up do, do their own kind of tailoring of the information so that they can provide those services to different uh, communities such as the agricultural community, the FAA, the, you know, the airports and all of those different communities. So it, it really is just like you said, it's a that we we are the backbone of kind of the, the weather enterprise, weather, water and climate enterprise, to be honest. And so 
we do a lot of research. We work really closely together in terms of our laboratories working together, but also working uh, with the National Weather Service to improve those products and services and tools and technologies that they that they need in order to get you know the public the information that's necessary to protect their life and of course save their property. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Dr. Danae Carlos, the new director of NOAA's National Severe Storms Lab. And the only downside that I can find with Dr. Carlos is um, during football season, we tend to go at it because he is an OU fan. Uh, I am. I'm at the University of Georgia, and he'll remember that whooping we put on him a few years ago out there in the ball game. <laughs> but other than that, he's a good man, and I'm happy to be talking to him about his new career. Now, let's talk about NSSL. Um, you're walking in the door literally a few days from the taping of this. What's your goal? What would you tell people there at NSSL and the nation about what you hope to achieve while there? Well, I, I think it it starts with me kind of coming in humble, uh, listening to kind of what the priorities are. Where where are we? Be, where are we successful? Where do where do we have challenges? Um, and you know, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm in this particular role is is because I. You know, I've, I've led big programs, big organizations, and always my my first thought is go in and learn the organization. Uh, you know, learn what everybody does, figure out exactly where there are gaps in terms of uh, just resources that we need to fill, uh, figure out where there are, you know, business practices that we need to uh, improve. Um, and so I, I look at it you know, holistically. I don't look at it as, you know, Danae, you have all of the ideas and you need to go in and push your ideas on everybody else. And my my plan really is to to take, you know, at least the first six weeks to 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 three months to figure out exactly where are the gaps and what are the challenges that we're facing as an organization. Now, don't get me wrong, I have my own ideas <laughs> and things that I want to do. Uh, whether that be on the numerical weather prediction side or on the radar side, which I know we have uh, some, we're really trying to work with the National Weather Service to uh, transition to the next generation phased array radar. Uh, so that's going to be absolutely top of my priority list. But at the same time, you know, I'm I'm very much so a people person, and I'm I want to I want to empower people to do their jobs and to be able to do the science that we, you know, pay them to do, that the public pays them to do, um, that they've worked so hard and and done so uh, so much excellent work doing. And so I want to be able to come in and accentuate uh, the things that they're doing and take their take their work and publicize it and and tell Congress all of the great things that they're doing 
and, and be, really be able to continue to build NSSL into the organization, the, the excellent organization that it's been and that it's going to continue to be whether I'm there or not. Right. And, and you heard Dr. Carlos mention uh, phased array radar. I'm actually teaching my radar meteorology, mesoscale meteorology course right now this semester at the University of Georgia. And I was just talking to the students about sort of the evolution of radar from the sort of WSR 70s series up through the Doppler series and you know, the upgrade to dual polarimetric in recent years. Yeah. And the next great advance is dual uh, phased array radar. Mm -hmm. So, and I know that's a, a big priority within NSSL world. So I've I'll be watching with bated breath uh, to see that as well. I mean, the quietest kept, a lot of people don't know this. You may not even know this, but my master's degree work actually was in radar meteorology. And I worked with um, Professor Ray at FSU, who was, uh, I believe, a former deputy director at NSSL himself, or at least in some role before he came to Florida State. So I, I always have a special heart, uh, place in my heart for the work being done in NSSL. Now I want to pivot okay. to a little bit. And I mean, not quite all the way there yet, but I, I just want to know what you have found, because, again, you do have the tools to do this job well. Um, and so when I heard the announcement, when I learned of it, uh, I was like, well, that, that makes sense to me. Um, you've got the technical background. You've got yeah, the yeah. scientific background. You've managed large projects and organizations. So that's what you need. Yep. What do you find have been your biggest challenges in your career today, either technically or interpersonally or so forth? Uh, because we've all had them. So I'm curious about sort of the sort of types of challenges you faced as you've ascended into this role. I, I would say probably my biggest challenge, and this is really personal, is confidence. Um, and that aspect of confidence is just kind of how I grew up, where I grew up, um, really challenging situations. But at, at some level, um, you know, I I knew that I was, I knew I was smart. I knew I could do uh, the work and I was a hard worker. I had a great work ethic coming up as a, as a kid. I, I loved the science, but I, I didn't necessarily have the resources, Marshall, like a lot of people uh, that come from uh, black and brown communities, not necessarily having the resources and the, and the confidence that you can actually get it done. And so, you know, there was a time really, you know, I go back to what what really kind of changed my life really is, you know, my mom at the time was a single mom and I'm 16 years old and I, I'm the man of the house basically. And I think I'm supposed to be taking care of her, you know, and, and, and she comes to me one day and just asked me, kind of nine simple words. What are you planning on doing after you graduate from high school, basically? Um, I don't know if that's nine or not, but <laughs> but I, but that's what she that's what she asked me. And when she asked me that, I, I, I gave her an answer like I'm the man of the house. I'm supposed to take care of you. I'm, I'm going to go get me a job and help take care of my family and my sister and all of that kind of stuff. And she said that's the dumbest thing she ever heard in her life. And, you know, you know, I'm, I'm a student at, at Booker T. Washington High School in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, and she's like, what, what are you talking about? Why aren't you thinking about going to college? And I'm like, you know, I, I feel like I'm supposed to take care of my mom and everything like that. And she was like, well, you know, I, I don't think that's I don't think that's your path, son. And and she and she was like, you know, well, you know, I feel, you know, I, the only thing I told her, the only thing I know about college is that it costs money. And I know I don't have a lot of that. And she and she said, you know, well, I think God will make a way. 
And and she, once she said that, man, it just totally like released me and freed me uh, to be, you know, in this position that I am in today. And so, you know, I went off to Howard University uh, back in 1995 at the age of 17, playing in the marching band and, you know, trying to get trying to get scholarship money. You know, at that at that time, particularly, I I had I think I got like thirty thousand dollars in scholarship from the church, from John Starks, from the wet from uh, the the energy company, the electric company in, in Tulsa. So I applied for everything and my grades were good enough and I had enough support from my church as well uh, that, you know, it basically paid for my first year and a half of college. And, you know, I basically kind of finished it up and people just kept encouraging me, man. And, you know, seeing a, seeing something in me that, you know, I didn't necessarily see in myself. And so getting p- emails from people like you, getting emails from, you know, Vernon from Vernon Morris and getting emails from all these different people that just really believed in me and gave me that confidence that I could, that I could do things that I really kind of never thought that I would be able to do. And so I really, I really give praise to, you know, my mentors um, and just my, my colleagues who just continue to push me to, to, to even greater heights than I've ever really even wanted. This wasn't my vision for myself, to be honest, Marshall. And, you know, I just, I believe that, that people can actually help uh, an individual create a vision for themselves. And so I'm, I'm really am, I'm living the dream every day. I really yeah. am. Well, I'm just grateful for it. You guys, and it's it's a really inspiring story, uh, you know, and, and mimics much of mine as well. Growing up with a single mother, but you know, I, I always say we all will be placed in situations where we've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And yeah. I know that um, in roles that I have played, uh, and in new roles that you've taken on, and including this one, there's probably some uncomfortable moments of discomfort to it and Absolutely. so forth but we trusted our training and our background and our and our our deep pool of mentors that we all pull from because you know, that'll make a way now having said that you are we are two sort of rarities i mean i'm, I'm looking for an extinct almost an extinction list on the wall because <laughs> we're two african-american male phds talking yep, yep. atmospheric sciences right now on weather geeks and you and i both know uh that uh, the numbers are very low uh, for a lot of historical and access re- reasons that that are well documented, but and the numbers really haven't changed. I think the number of uh, uh, African American members of the American Meteorological Society, the last I checked, maybe around two percent or so, yeah. maybe a little bit more, but it's not much. And I even saw when it was announced that you were in this role, I saw someone comment on a media outlet, and basically, and I won't repeat what they said. But like you, me, you, I have faced this as well. People questioning your qualifications or whether your background or whether you are the right person to be in that job. And so it speaks to the work that you've also done in terms of equity and inclusion. So talk about that aspect of your sort of career path. Well, I, I think the the one thing from uh, uh, equity and inclusion kind of diversity kind of perspective is you know, I, I I still go back to I remember you telling me, Danae, focus on your technical prowess at the beginning of your career, because people are going to start pulling you each and every way, asking you to do this speaking engagement and outreach. And, you know, so I, I really tried to heed your advice with regards to, you know, focus in, 
you know, and I, I went to the Environmental Modeling Center after spending some time at the Honolulu Forecast Office in, in Hawaii and uh, learning a little bit about forecasting and model development out there um, while finishing up my PhD. And so I really focused in on my technical skills and, you know, doing, you know, taking your advice. And, you know, so I, I listen to my mentors and, and people that have given me the advice that have kind of gone through this process because it was brand new to me. I'm first generation, basically. So I'm, I, I need the advice. I need to listen to the folks that have kind of gone through this. So I put my head down, focused in on my work for those first seven years. But I also, you know, I did spend some time trying to recruit students and get opportunities for students, you know, because I have that that connection to Howard University um, in the NOAA Center for Atmospheric Sciences and Meteorology, I was able to, to you know, create pathways for students to, you know, come into the National Centers for Environmental Prediction, NSEP, out in College Park, Maryland. And, and so, I, I mean, I probably created over 30, 40 plus opportunities for young people and, and people of color to come in and do research uh, within the organization. And that, you know, that takes, you know, some respect, you know, people, you know, people got to respect you if they're going to allow you to, to, to take some of their resources and, and, and spend some time mentoring students. And so, you know, I've worked really hard to um, make sure that my reputation precedes me. And I'm, I'm always uh, the type of person that's, I'm, I'll give you a shirt off my back and I will help you in any way possible. Uh, and from an inclusion perspective and belonging perspective, that's what people want to know. They want to know that you got their back, especially young scientists, and that you're willing to advocate for them. And so um, I've done that. You know, I've been there and done that, and I'm going to continue to do that in this role uh, as director of NSSL uh, because, you know, young people are our future. And I really want to see, especially, you know, we know that the demographics are changing over the next 20 to 30 years and that there will be more uh, people of color going into um, it, it as part of our population. So why can't we, um, as leaders, as as men, as uh, scientists, uh, make sure that we are, you know, trying to welcome uh, these young people into our fields? And I and I pray and I hope that you know mediums like this, this podcast, can inspire that next generation of of, of young scientists to want to do what we do because it's possible. You know, to me, if, if you believe and you have the right people in your life and you get the right support system, uh, it's possible to do really amazing work in this field. And so my, my motto is a rising tide lifts all boats. And so I want to be that rising tide. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Danae Carlos, soon to be, and if not, by the time you are hearing this, likely to be, uh, the director of the National uh, Severe Storms Laboratory in Norman, Oklahoma. So he's coming home, folks. Uh, here he comes. Uh, I know you mentioned he mentioned earlier he's from Tulsa and so forth. So you know that draw of home is strong. I'm back in my home state as well. 
uh, Danae has been, we, we just heard him talking about some of these issues. He actually founded, uh, co-founded NOAA's Diversity and Professional Advancement Working Group. And there have been, as you heard, many victories and achievements along the way with that. So uh, has always exhibited leadership across all fronts. And, you know, candidly, you know, some of you listening to this conversation on whether you, I know we have a very broad and wide listenership, maybe find this a little sort of different or uncomfortable to listen to, but we'll only make advances when we're all comfortable hearing all of the stories that are out there and not just the perspective or the marinades that each of us come from. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that Danae really brings to the table. I want to pivot back to sort of the science policy world, because you mentioned that you are a people person, but you have the technical skills, but, and, and he is very much a person that kind of when he's in the room, he lights it up. And I think that's a strength of his, um, how do we navigate Danae, this new space of science that involves sort of the interface between science, policy, decision makers, and so forth. Because one of the things that I've noticed, and I come from a government lab background too, before I came to the university, I was at NASA Goddard. We have a lot of people historically in these positions that are great scientists. They've got a lot of publications and that type of thing, but aren't necessarily sort of trained as leaders and administrators and sort of interfaces at policy. We're in a new world now. So how do you see that going forward in your skill set in this new world where we can't just talk the science? Yeah, we 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 absolutely have to get out of the ivory tower. Um, We got to we got to go out and communicate the science to the public, to uh, the different sectors that are using the information and that absolutely need the information. Like in, in terms of it's required for them to do their business, for them, for for them to, you know, kind of make money to in terms of bottom line. They got to be able to, to have the information necessary. Um, and we, you know, from our kind of weather, water and climate world, we we are the experts at providing that information. And so, you know, I look I look at my background and, you know, I was a little bit strategic in you know, understanding that I needed to get that technical expertise. So being able to uh, work in a forecast office, see how operations worked and uh, then going to the environmental modeling center and seeing how the research to operations process kind of works and and, and R&D kind of works on the weather service side to uh, getting in a leadership development program. Like, you know, my thing was, okay, Danae, what can you be really, really great at? Right. And there was a time there was a point in time where I had to really ask myself that question. And so, you know, when I asked myself that question, I said, you know, I I felt like I could be a really great leader. I felt like if I could get the training uh, necessary to go into leadership and management, that I would be a, a really, really good leader and probably a better leader than I am a scientist. And so I had to ask myself that that hard question. And so you know, having that kind of 10 year, 11 year period uh, of, of really kind of doing the science and then starting to transition and think about, you know, where do I, where could I make a bigger impact within the agency? Um, and, it, and there were people that were like, hey, you should apply for the leadership development. I wasn't even thinking about this program at the, at the time, Marshall. And they're like, hey, you should do this. I'm like, I'm happy just doing my, you know, doing my coding, writing scripts and analyzing the forecast. And and people are just like, you got, man, today you got to do this. And so, again, you know, people just lifting me up and just 
you know, giving me a vision for myself and helping to support that vision, um, you know, just kind of helped me move into that kind of science policy realm where I got an opportunity to work for NOAA headquarters and, you know, and and that that part was absolutely amazing because at, at the time I was really just focused on meteorology. But then when you go to work for NOAA headquarters, you get to learn about fisheries. You get to learn about the National Marine Sanctuaries and their mission. You get to learn about the satellite mission. And so that right there just just kind of blew me away and just gave me a perspective about the agency and the impact that our agency, NOAA, has on people's everyday lives, whether that means you go to a clean beach or whether you eat clean fish. Um, uh, those types of things, you know, actually make help you make decisions about who you are and how you live and all of those types of types of things. So that part just is really important to, you know, everyday people. And so that really is the NOAA mission as a, in, in, a, in, in just kind of in your face kind of way. We're, we're right there, right alongside you, helping you make decisions in the world. Um, and I'm just, I'm just happy to be a part of it. And so that part is really important to me. And I just feel like if I can continue on and, you know, continue on in the leadership capacity and help to, to build up everybody else right alongside me, um, you know, and push people beyond me as well. So I think that's just, that's, that's who I am. That's, that's kind of part of my DNA. I'm going to ask you two big questions here as we kind of start to close. And I just want to, that I want to get your perspective on the first question. Uh, as you look across the science enterprise, the weather enterprise, or even NOAA, what's one or two things you just think we need to evolve or change? I mean, if we, if you could wave your magic wand and make something different, um, technically, um, people-wise, uh, policy decision-wise, I mean, is there one big thing that's kind of that kind of I, I won't say keeps you up at night because I'm sure you sleep well, but yeah. you know, what, what's that one thing that kind of you would say? Well, I, I guess I would probably say, and it's kind of related to the last question. It it would be, you know, the the scientific integrity piece. You know, the amount of work and just you know education that people go through to go to learn the scientific process, the scientific methods, and then for, you know, people in out in the world to not necessarily believe, you know, kind of that we are well-trained, that we are ready to give you the information that is absolutely necessary and critical uh, to, to save your life and help help you to live a healthier life and your kids and your grandkids to live healthier lives. You know, that that's the one thing that kind of that continues to bother me. That's the probably that if I were to say keeps me up at night, that's the thing that keeps me up at night because there's just so much work and um, just people putting in a lot of their time to write these papers and to go through the scientific method to ensure that and and to get it reviewed by other experts you know we're not just putting out opinions right you know at some level this is this is this is you know this is the truth in our eyes you know when and we've gone through the scientific process to ensure that you know other people are reviewing that information and making sure that it's accurate. And so 
if I could change anything, I would I would definitely want to change people's belief in science. And the last question is, what do you enjoy most about your career so far? The people that I've helped um, that I've you know, I've seen so many of my my colleagues and friends be able to to move into new spaces and to you know make an impact in the world. And that part to me just it that's just that's why I kind of get up every day is to see everybody else kind of do their thing and be great at it. And you know, I just I, I just I like to watch. I like the people watch and I like to see, you know, people like you doing television. And I I, I love it. And it just it inspires me. It makes me want to do more. Um, and I don't know. That's you know, my, it's funny because my mom, she was uh, she worked for the state of Oklahoma. She worked for uh, she was a secretary for most of her her career. Um, and she just, she loved helping people. And I, I, I get that from her. Um, and my dad, he has the work ethic. My dad just, I mean, this dude can work. He's still working in 92, by the way, this dude is 92. He still works (laughs) each and every day. He gets up and he goes to work and he, he, you know, he rides on a bus with these kids and, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I really am a reflection of both of them and they're great people. Um, and that's, that's, really what inspires me is is them as well as other people around me. And that's who I am, man. So I'm yeah. always going to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope, I hope as you're listening to this, you are hearing it's coming through the speakers or that AirPod or that whatever beats or whatever you're listening to this on your radio, this true genuine person that Dr. Carlos is, uh, but has all the technical know-how, the scientific background uh, but he also has some skill sets that I just think we need in this generation of leaders. And so, and by the way, I want to say you heard him mention some advice that I gave him. It's just advice that Dr. Warren Washington gave me. And Dr. Danae Carlos is now passing on his own set of experiences and, and advice to others. And I, that's just how it works. Danae, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. We wish you the best in your new position. And you know we're there uh, if you need us. All right. Thank you, Marshall. I really appreciate the opportunity to to be on your podcast. And, you know, how much I look up to you, how much I admire you and your career. You know, thank you for pouring into people like me, man. And when you didn't have to. Yeah, well, you, I, just, you just, I, I really appreciate you, sir. Well, well I appreciate it. Uh, and I'll send the check later. But <laughs> I want to end with our Geek of the Week, and I'm taking host privilege here because um, my producers did not give me a Geek of the Week, but every week we highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is the, the program in Atmospheric Sciences at Howard University because uh, Danae comes from that program. Uh, there are a lot of good people and mentors and friends that, you know, we can start rattling off Dr. Vernon Morris, Dr. Greg Jenkins, Dr. Everett Joseph, Dr. Michelle Hawkins, Dr. Jimmy Sims, Andrea Seely, Segill. There's so many people that I can't do that justice. So I just want to give a shout out uh, to the nation's only uh, historically black college university with a, uh, well, not only, but one of the first, if not the first, with an atmospheric sciences focus at uh, master's and doctoral levels. So that's our geek of the week. 
And with that, I'm going to end it. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll see you next time on Weather Geeks.